Dr. Devashish Danda is the founder of the Department of Clinical Immunology and Rheumatology at Christian Medical College Hospital in Velour. It's in the southern part of India. And I uh, uh, also was involved with APLAR for quite some time and the IJRD as editor-in-chief for six years. And I just handed over to Dr. Kevin Pyle this year. What I took away from your talk was that this disease, Takayasu arteritis, is not very common in Australia, is that right? Uh, it's not common anywhere. It's a rare disease, even in India. But certainly much more commoner than in the Western Hemisphere. It's predominantly seen in the Southeast Asian, South Asian population. And the other side, it's Turkey and Mexico, Brazil have a little bit of that. Whereas in Caucasian population, there are very small numbers. But as I have mentioned in one of the papers, the Norwegians have mentioned recently that with increased awareness, they are now detecting two to four times than before the new cases of Takayasu. And I was intrigued to see once uh, some years ago in Ular, I met somebody from Iceland and how many people are there, I'm not sure. They have presented a series of some 70 patients for Iceland. Uh, so it's probably definitely ethnically restricted to certain ethnic groups, uh, as I mentioned, the Asians, South Asians, and less common. And your counterpart is giant cell arthritis in the Caucasian population, which we have very few. I, I was when I was in Adelaide for three years. I have seen giant cell arthritis, but about 25 years in my hospital in India, I have seen only three cases of giant cell arthritis till now. So, so this is the thing. So this this is the paradox. <laughs> so I saw in your talk that giant cell arteritis and uh, Takayasu arteritis are sometimes difficult to distinguish. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Yeah. Giant cell arthritis and Takayasu both involve the large arteries. They are together classified as large vessel vasculitis. And they both involve the aorta. But giant cell arthritis is a much more restricted disease. It predominantly affects the initial ascending part of the aorta and usually the vessels supplying the retina are affected sometimes in the temporal arteries. Whereas Takayasu, there are six types, five types, it is uh, class uh, two having 2A and 2B. Uh, it has got variable level of involvement. The type five, the commonest in Asian population, has got extensive involvement from the ascending aorta till the bifurcation of the aorta. So it is much more extensive than giant cell arteritis. That is one difference. So systemic features and systemic inflammatory response is much more. The fibrotic and stenotic lesions are much more in Takayasu than giant cell. Takayasu, by definition, the onset of disease has to be below the age of 40. The giant cell arteritis is usually by definition after 50. There are cases which are in the gray area, but they have small numbers. And so as I mentioned, today in the talk, a younger patient of giant cell arthritis or an older patient of Takayasu arthritis may be difficult sometimes, but that's probably negligible. So it's very easy to otherwise differentiate. The giant cell arthritis presents with usually, as you know, the headache, a new headache with loss of pulse, but thickened temporal artery, and they can have visual loss. They can have polymyalgia rheumatica with arthritis 
Whereas Takayasu arthritis usually affects the young people. They have systemic response. They have claudication. They try to do any work with hands or feet. They get uh, pain, and with only with rest it goes. They also get uh, pain sometimes. The carotid artery is called carotidynia. There will be asymmetry and absence of pulse and blood pressure in both upper limb and lower limbs. Where giant cell arthritis, if there is absence of pulse, it is very rare that to mostly restricted to the upper limb, not to the lower limb. So these are some of the the broad differences between the giant cell arthritis and Takayasu. And I saw in your talk there was a lot of slides relating to biomarkers, yes. uh, particularly novel ones that your research team um, discovered. Do you, yeah. do you want to talk me through what those were? Yeah. Actually, it's a very, very relevant question you have asked because in Takayasu's there are really there is a paucity of biomarkers. We do not know how to go by it. Many patients leave the Takayasu's patients without treatment because except for asymmetry of pulse and blood pressure, they don't find anything. So they consider the patient is not having any disease activity till they turn up with some stroke or renal failure or blindness. So therefore, we need to have good biomarkers. We have been working on biomarkers. So are lots of people in China, Japan, and in the Western world, France, they're working on biomarkers. So apart from ESR and CRP, the commonly used acute phase reactants, as I mentioned, they are not elevated in half the patients of Takayasu's, even there is activity on angiographically, otherwise clinically. So we have looked for new biomarkers. The Chinese and the others have already described pentraxin-3, the Japanese, and this is a good biomarker, but it is a molecule same like C-reactive protein. So it probably doesn't have much more advantage, but it's still not commercially exploited. We have worked on certain biomarkers using our common sense, uh, like um, uh, serum amyloid A. This protein is uh, very important in chronic inflammation. It has got relationship with endothelium. And same is C-reactive protein. And we have, we have seen the study we have published. We found why some patients of Takayasu do not raise the C-reactive protein. So we found particular SNPs. If the patient has certain polymorphisms, they don't produce CRP. So there are overproducers and underproducers. So this is other. And apart from that, uh, as I have shown to you, just this month, the new paper came from Japan. They described uh, certain polymorphisms and fibroblast growth factor 2, which seems to be very, very good marker to differentiate Takayasu from giant cell arthritis. So disease activity in Takayasu is sometimes very difficult. So we have, over the uh, nearly 10 years it took for us, uh, under the mentorship of prof late Professor Paul Bacon from Birmingham, he was our mentor for Indian Rheumatology Vasculitis core group. And we had about uh, 20 workshops over 10 year period. We had uh, devised a clinical scoring combining with acute phase reactants called ITAS, Indian Takayasu Activity Score, and ITAS A, Indian Takayasu Activity Score Acute Phase Reactant. Uh, uh, this has been derived largely from Birmingham Vasculitic Score of Lupus. Initially from there, we uh, derived what is known as DEI-TAC, Disease Extent Index of Takayasu Arthritis, which shows the extent of disease, very comprehensive, but it doesn't discriminate between active versus inactive disease. It doesn't help whether we should escalate the treatment or lower the treatment. 
So we looked at which are the clinical parameters which are most sensitive to change, change for worse or better. So we have deleted a lot of items by doing workshops with live patients as well as paper patients and we worked out first the inter-observer variabilities etc. And in 10 years time, I think by 2010, we were ready with the ITAS score. So we call it ITAS 2010. And uh, this has been found to have nearly more than 85% sensitivity and specificity for uh, differentiating clinically active from inactive disease. And this is, apart from this, there was a CUR criteria by NIH group, uh, which is uh, not often practical to do. Uh, we are also working on improving the ITAS further. It also has its own limitation. But now a lot of people are using our ITAS score. Japanese are using, Chinese are using, Europe, Turkey, there's a very active group on Takayasu, they're also using. So we are very happy, we have indicated that our stand is our assessment score is liked by many. In a year's time, I'm also convener of the APLAR vasculitis group. And today we had a special interest group meeting. We discussed about updating and improving the ITAS score. And we will first discuss what are the limitations of the ITAS score people face while scoring. And we will address those issues and hopefully by next APLAR we'll have a new ITAS score or maybe name will be different. And is that score based on these biomarkers or is it no. It's just a disease activity yeah. score? Yeah. So unfortunately not. Uh, we have clinical scoring derived from BIVA score as I mentioned. And we add up with, uh, we are given a range for ESR and CRP. Below 20 ESR, 0. 20 to 40, 40 to 60 and above 60. Similar C-reactive protein less than 5, 5 to 10, 10 to 20 and above 20. So we add this up directly with the ITAS 2010 score and we call it ITAS A. So ITAS A seems to be having better correlation with uh, clinical uh, as well as angiographic changes. We also intend to correlate with angiography but unfortunately it's not realistic to do angiography repeatedly it's expensive it's invasive and uh, if you do a ct angio or, or a conventional angio uh, it's uh, it also has certain minimum amount of risk involved so uh, as you said we are now working on a multiplex uh, assay for uh, running about 20 uh, putative biomarkers and we are hoping to have a composite index of biomarkers. So like the Japanese have found, if you have a uh, pentraxin 3 along with high sensitive CRP, it gives a more little better pre-test probability of picking up uh, active disease. So we, are, uh, we have a, currently a grant from the Government of India funding agency uh, and we are doing a multiplex uh, essay of running several biomarkers, some of them which I have mentioned as some others, uh, especially the matrix metalloproteinases and uh, uh, many other acute phase reactants, cytokines and we are going to see if various permutations and combinations of them can predict uh, good or bad outcome, uh, can reflect true activity versus uh, inactive disease. And why is it so important to have a disease activity score? Uh, because patients have to be given immunosuppression. We cannot keep giving steroids forever. The high dose, as you know, it's a very toxic drug. Uh, we have ourselves now learned to give half the dose of initial steroids, which is as good. So we would like to eventually have to come down on the immunosuppression 
how do we go about it so that is the purpose of having biomarkers and disease activity scoring which can help us decide whether we have to escalate the dose so that the patient do not develop fibrotic and stenotic lesion or we have to reduce the dose so that patient do not get unnecessary immunosuppression and toxicity Yep, absolutely. Um, and I saw some rheumatologists came up to you at the end of the talk to ask about treatments. Um, what were some of the things that you were telling them? Uh, there's one doctor from Bangladesh, a young doctor, he was asking that how do you treat the poor patient? They cannot afford biologics like uh, tocilizumab or TNA blockers. Even mycophenolate is expensive for many poor patients. He's right. Um, so I have suggested him to go for... Um, uh, methotrexate is the cheapest. If in full dose of methotrexate on three months, he is unable to taper the steroids. That's the difficulty he was facing. That means it's not working. So you got to switch over to another agent. So I told him the next cheapest option is azathioprine. He was thinking of leflunomide also. It has been used, but its results are mixed, not as good. Azathioprine is a cheap and very effective drug. However, it's also toxic. The other doctor from Australia, she was asking about an Australian lady who is a Takayashu, which is, and she is planning to have family, she wants to plan pregnancy. So she is on TNF blocker and she is on methotrexate. Obviously she has to stop methotrexate six months before pregnancy plan, which she is doing. And about TNF blockers now, the recent data says that it's not as bad as it was thought. It is now considered that on Cautiously, it can be continued during pregnancy. So she was worried about any fetal effect uh, of TNF blocker. Uh, several studies have shown it's relatively safe in pregnancy. So with fingers crossed, I think she can go ahead and she can switch over methotrexate to azathioprine if she cannot, doesn't want to give uh, uh, TNF blocker. Uh, other doctor came from Melbourne. She was asking. Uh, no, she just came to compliment me. That's all. Thank you. <laughs> That's lovely. Well, thank you so much for your time. That was so fascinating. Thank really you. interesting to hear. Thank you so much. I would. Uh, uh, Australia is uh, home. Was home for me for three years. Me, my wife, and my little son. That time, we all stayed in Adelaide for three years. We have fond memories of Australia, and we always liked uh, the way we are treated. With so much of love and affection in Australia. I uh, actually wanted to come with my family this time, uh, but something happened so we couldn't make it. Uh, it's a great country, great people, very friendly people, and I find the Aussies are very cool people. They are not stressed out too much like in many other Western North American countries. So um, it's, a, it's a good country to be, and I hope to come back again sometime, somewhere. <laughs> well, that's really great to hear.